Good to be here with you tonight. Uh, tonight we're starting our, our uh, study through, really a Bible study through the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We'll explain more about that in a moment. But uh, as far as format goes, it's going to be a, a little different from what we normally do in this sense in that because there is so much ground to cover that it's going to be a bit more um, didactic in nature in the sense of like less conversational meaning that we do want your questions, but we're just going to have to take them a different way. So we'll go through the study tonight, but write down your questions because we absolutely want to address them. And then afterwards, then we'll come up here. I'll stay up here for however long you want, and we can discuss what questions that you have. All right? Good to be with you again. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask him for his help. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word, your truth. And God, we ask that you'd help us to rightly understand your word and not only to understand it intellectually and to give mental assent to it, but that it would actually transform our hearts and our minds and our lives as you deserve. God, we pray that, that you, we would hold your scriptures to high regard and that in all of this study, you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, if you have studied, uh, rather spent any time around Reformed Baptists, then you may have heard of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which we have out in the shelves there in the foyer if you're interested in having one. And it's true that, that many consider themselves Reformed Baptists with any kind of relationship, without any kind of relationship to the 1689. And often when people say that, they're Reformed Baptists, but they have no relation to the 1689. What that simply means is that one is Calvinist, but they're not Paedobaptist, or they're not Presbyterian. But being Reformed, in a historical sense, is a lot more than agreeing with the doctrines of grace, more commonly known as the five points of Calvinism. Being Reformed historically means that you subscribe to one of the Reformed confessions. And being Reformed Baptist means specifically subscribing to one of the Baptistic Reformed confessions, and the most prominent of them being the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, established in 1689. Now, that raises several questions. What is a confession of faith? Uh, what does it mean to subscribe to a confession? Why subscribe to a confession? Why even spend time going through this together on a Wednesday night? Well, a confession of faith is, is essentially a document that it seeks to summarize biblical teaching. We have one. We have a confession of faith. It's our own church's statement of faith, and that was uh, based on a 19th century document called the Abstract of Principles, which was the Confession of Faith of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and still is. And so, our church's statement of faith is itself a confession of faith. Every single member of our church has at one point reviewed our statement of faith and signed off on it, and in signing off on it, agreeing to submit to the doctrines of the church. As part of the membership process, we we, we'd spend time inviting people to ask questions about the document and even, even express concerns about it, but it's clearly understood as you're going through this process that if you're going to be a member of this church, 
you have to be able to at least substantially subscribe to that document. And understanding that process is going to help us to understand the latter two questions. What does it mean to subscribe to a confession? And why subscribe to a confession? To subscribe to a confession means to express agreement with that document. Some people hold to a position that's called strict subscriptionism, which, which basically means that, that you agree with the document completely. And some churches require that kind of strict subscription in order to become a member. We don't hold that position at our church. But we do need to know, as they're going through membership process, where does a person agree, where do they disagree? Especially for pastors to know that. Why? For the sake of unity. Now, that might sound weird to you. It may seem counterintuitive to see a confession of faith as something that's uniting because, in fact, when you have a confession of faith, it does set you apart from what is called Christianity out in the world today. And while it may make you distinct from Christianity as a whole, it bolsters the unity of a local church. It bolsters the unity of a local church. There are a lot of false doctrines out in the world today. And false doctrines are notorious for creating divisions in the church. Always have been and will be until Christ returns. So a confession of faith or a statement of faith guards a local church's doctrine and it prevents the spread of false teaching within the local church. It also promotes unity because, because all of the teaching within a local church conforms to the church's body of doctrine. And you see that among the pastors. It'd be very weird if one pastor preaches this and the next week another pastor of the church preaches something completely contrary to what the pastor A had said. And so you see a unity in our doctrine because we've come to agreements about what the Bible teaches. And also the pastors in the church can, can forbid teaching that's contrary to the established doctrine of the church. But you say, Ed, why couldn't we just use Scripture to accomplish that? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Simply put, every heretic has his verse. Every heretic has his verse. All throughout church history, when someone has started a heresy, he or she has perverted scripture to establish that heresy. And what we found in church history is what church leaders have found to be helpful in being able to root out heresy is to present a statement and ask whether a person who's accused of heresy, if they could attest that statement. Here's what the Bible teaches. Can you attest to this statement? So for, because people can equivocate in their minds, okay? So for example, Mormons would wholeheartedly affirm the deity of Christ. But if you ask a Mormon whether Jesus is God, then they'd either need to deny that statement or they would need to equivocate in their minds. You follow? So a confession of faith in this way seeks to summarize the teaching of Scripture in key areas in order to establish unity and to root out heresy. If somebody tells you he's Christian, these days that could mean a lot of things. If somebody tells you he's Protestant, then that, that narrows it down a bit more for you. If he tells you that he's Baptist, then it narrows it down a little bit more. And yet, there are all sorts of Baptists. 
There are Baptists who affirm female pastors. There are bastards, uh, pa- Baptists. I've got to delete that somehow. There are Baptists who think they speak in tongues, etc. When someone tells you he's Reformed, that becomes even clearer. And if someone tells you that they're, they hold to the 1689, well, that's about as, as precise as, as you can be in describing your theology. So if you're out in the street preaching and someone comes up to you and, and says that he's Christian, you can praise God. You can praise God that that's a Christian in front of you. But really, that could mean anything. Mormons call themselves Christians. Roman Catholics call themselves Christian. Perhaps Jehovah's Witnesses even call themselves Christian. I remember actually we were approached at a, a Pastor Rolo and, and a couple pastors from another church and I were approached at a breakfast place and she said, yeah, we have the same religion. I'm Jehovah's Witness. And we were just kind of caught off guard. It could mean anything. But if someone comes up to you on the street and tells you that he's from a 1689 church, you're more likely to immediately feel a sense of unity with that brother or sister. Now, here is not what we're saying. Here's what we're not saying. We're not saying that we are disunited from the larger body of Christ. Whoever is born again is our brother and sister in Christ. Amen? Amen? Phew! In a very real sense, we are automatically united to them in Christ. Some of our, even our most respected brothers and sisters and even the Reformed camp, they could not subscribe to the 1689 because of its positions on baptism, church government, and covenant theology. But nonetheless, we consider each other dear brothers and sisters in Christ, yet we have a lot more in common than we have differences. So let's think about some of the practical applications of having no confession of faith. Let's say we don't want any confession of faith as a church. Someone wants to join our church, and she says that she trusts Jesus for salvation, and we say amen. And because of that, we immediately welcome her into membership because she's a follower of Jesus Christ. In the first members meeting, she stands up, and she says that she has a message from God. She says that she has been told by God that she is going to be the new apostle of this church. So now we have to immediately start a process of church discipline with a brand new member. Having a confession of faith allows a prospective member to come into our membership with their eyes wide open. They look at it and they say, this is what this church believes. If I am to join this church, then I have to submit to these doctrines. That apostle lady can either be corrected ahead of time, nipping the disunity in the bud, or she can decide, I don't want to be a part of this church, and thus maintaining the unity of this local church. Now you might say, that is not how it worked in the first century. As soon as someone believed, he became a member of the local church. And that's true. But even in Acts chapter 2, we see that the church devoted themselves, it doesn't say to the scriptures, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Isn't that interesting? They had the scriptures. They had the Old Testament scriptures, and surely they were also devoted to the Old Testament scriptures, but specifically in Acts chapter 2, we see that they were devoted to the doctrines that the apostles were teaching. In other words, even as early as Acts chapter 2, the church subscribed to a body of doctrine, even if they had not written it out yet. 
And if somebody departed from the apostles' teaching, then he was corrected. And sometimes some of them were even called out by name in the New Testament from departing from the apostles' teaching. Now, the phrase submitting to a church's doctrines, that might hit your ear funny, and it should. Confessions and statements of faith are man-made documents. They are not inspired scripture, and they're not necessarily inerrant nor infallible. Now, with that said, a statement of faith can be inerrant and infallible. Here's an example of a statement of faith that is inerrant and infallible. Jesus is God. The Bible never says that phrase exactly, And yet, we know from a study of the scriptures that that conclusion that I've just said, that statement of faith that I've just said, is inerrant and infallible. It is true, and it is never failing. Every Christian needs to submit to that statement of faith, to the doctrine that Jesus is God. Any person who denies that statement is not a true Christian. So when a church's members establish a confession of faith, What they're doing is they are expressing what they understand to be true based on the Bible. And so it's good, it's right, it's proper for a person who's joining the church to subscribe to the church's teaching and not cause division in the church. Now again, we don't require strict subscription at our church. There are areas in in which the Bible is not as clear as in other areas. And so in those areas, we practice charity. We practice unity. As long as that brother or sister in Christ is willing to agree not to actively teach against the church's doctrines. And in that way, we preserve unity in the local church. So, what does the 1689 have to do with our church? Well, if you look at our constitution and bylaws, it has our statement of faith in the constitution and bylaws. But it also adds on a footnote, additionally, we have great respect for the first London Confession of Particular Baptists, 1644, and the second London Confession of Particular Baptists, 1677 and 1689. Well, we have great respect for it. What on earth does that mean? What does it mean that we have great respect for the 1689? How can we have great respect for it if we don't know it? So we're going to spend some time seeking to know it better. But how will we go about it? By examining the scriptures to see whether what the confession says is true. We're going to look at the scriptures more than the confession. We don't hold any confession to the same level as the scriptures. They're not even in the same ballpark. The scriptures are the baseball game, And the confession is the post-game commentary about the game. Does that make sense? It may be completely accurate. That post-game analysis may be completely accurate, but it does need analysis from us. And that's what we're going to seek to do for the coming months. So with that in mind, this is how we're going to approach this study. We're going to spend very little time. I already put the confession on the chair. We're going to spend very little time on the confession itself. Okay? With all of its historical context and nuances. What we're going to do is we're going to spend almost all of the time examining the scripture references that the authors uh, appeal to in order to support their claims. 
We're going to start with the scriptures. We're going to exposit them. And then we'll go back to the chapter of the confession to see if we actually line up with that chapter. And in so doing, the hope is we're going to see how faithful this document is and whether it is indeed deserving of our respect and our, and our subscription. So without further ado, we're going to start this endeavor eager to receive the word of God while examining the scriptures to see whether what is being taught is true. So chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. For starters, again, let's see what the scriptures say about the scriptures. What the scriptures say about the scriptures. And we're going to start with 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Let's take a look together. What you're about to hear is the very word of God for you. Listen intently. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We learn a lot about the Bible from just that passage. We're actually going to look at, at six, if you have an outline, six things about the Bible tonight. And the first five are just from this very passage here. And here's what we learn. Number one, the Bible is sacred. The Bible is sacred. Now, just as a, a side note, this, this may sound completely elementary, but I just want to make sure that we are on the same page here. We use the term Bible and scriptures interchangeably. For, for followers of Jesus Christ, the scriptures are the Bible. And the Bible is the scriptures. And the Bible is sacred. It's sacred. The Apostle Paul, who's, who's writing here to his protege and ministry partner, Timothy, he points out that, that while the world around Timothy is getting worse and worse, Timothy should continue in what he has learned and what he has firmly believed, knowing from whom he learned it, verse 14 says. Paul is probably referring to Timothy's grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice, who are mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Grandma and mom uh, raised him up in the word, and Timothy was to continue in what he'd learned and he firmly believed, knowing that he had learned it from faithful people. Not only did it come from faithful people, but, but Timothy also knew that he had, verse 15 says, from childhood been acquainted with the sacred writings. In other words, what Timothy knew to be true and what he believed, it wasn't new to him. He had been acquainted with the writings from childhood, and, and they weren't just any writings. They were, verse 15 calls them, sacred. Sacred. What does that word mean? The word sacred means that it's related to God. It is holy. It's set apart by God. And that is why we don't hold any other writing up to the level of the scriptures. Many writings are helpful. Many writings are true. But it is the scriptures and only the scriptures that are considered sacred writings. Well, what writings are Paul talking about here in particular? Well, primarily, 
he's talking about the Old Testament. At this point, the New Testament canon hadn't even been established in its entirety. New Testament doctrine was already being taught by the apostles and the prophets in the church, but those, these books that we, that we now have compiled from Matthew to Revelation that we call the New Testament were written and collected over decades. However, the apostles in the church were very aware that scripture was also being written in their time. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that the apostles in the church knew that scripture was being written in their time? Well, here are two examples in the New Testament. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, called 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writes this, 1 Timothy 5, 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The first quote is from Deuteronomy 25, 4. The second quote is Luke 10, 7. Luke 10, 7. So an Old Testament quote and a New Testament quote, both identified as the scripture. So that's one example. The second example is in 2 Peter 3.16. 2 Peter 3.16. Peter, who speaks about Paul's letters, writes this. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Which, by the way, encourages us when we have a hard time understanding some of the things Paul wrote, because even Peter said that they were hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. By referring to other scriptures, what Peter is implying is that Paul's letters are also scripture. But what are scriptures? What does scripture mean? Literally, the word means writings, but if you trace that Greek word, graphe, all over the Bible, whether it's in the New Testament Greek or in the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, anytime that word is used, it's only ever used to refer to the Holy Scriptures. All that to say is this, Old Testament and New Testament combined is sacred. It's holy. Do you see it that way? When you hear the Bible being read, are you giving your undivided attention to it as if God himself is speaking? Because in a very real way, he is. When you hear the word being preached, are you eager to receive it as if it's from God himself? Because in a very real way, in as much as the preacher is being faithful to it, it is from God himself. Even when during the week you open it up to read it, do you approach it with reverence as being a message from the God of the universe to you? Because it is. The Bible is sacred. That's the first thing we'll walk away with. The Bible is sacred. The second thing, hold your questions, brother, just for the recording's sake. That's okay. Save it uh, to the very end here. Second, the Bible saves. The Bible saves. Now, we know that the Bible itself the Bible itself doesn't save. It doesn't save by itself. It's God who saves, right? But he uses his scriptures to the end of saving people. The second part of verse 15 in 2 Timothy 3 describes the Bible like this. 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The idea of being made wise for salvation is that it teaches you how to be saved. How to be saved. And how are you saved? Look at the last part of verse 15. Through faith in Christ Jesus. A person is saved by grace through faith in Christ. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us so. And more importantly, the one who gave us the Bible tells us so. And by the way, you might be here tonight and you need to hear that message because you're not right with God and you need to be right with God because if you die today or Christ returns and you don't know God through Jesus Christ, you will face his just wrath for your sins. But the Bible tells us, God tells us through his word that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ for salvation. The one who gave us the Bible tells us this. And because of this, the Bible itself is able to save someone even without a preacher, provided that that the reader who's reading it is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And that's why in John 20, verse 31, John writes this. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John expects that the people who are reading his gospel could be saved by believing what he wrote about Jesus. So powerful is God's word. In fact, we have a sister in our church whose testimony is that the way that she was saved is that she was sick and her father offered to read the Bible to her. I don't know why he offered to read the Bible to her, but he did. And she and he were both saved just from his reading the Bible to her. Isn't that amazing? How amazing is God's word? It should be said that it's not necessarily the precise words of the Bible that save. Follow, follow this thinking with me. In other words, if you don't get John 3.16 word perfect, it's not going to cost somebody his eternal life. If you say what John 3.16 says in your own words, provided that the meaning of what you're saying matches what John 3.16 means, then somebody could be saved through that. One of the ways that that we know that the Bible's saving power is not dependent on a word-perfect recitation of the Bible is that even in the New Testament, you find that the writers are kind of loose on their allusions and, and on their quotes of the Old Testament. Sometimes you read a quote of the Old Testament and the New Testament and the words are changed a little bit. And sometimes verses from two different Old Testament books are kind of mashed and blended into one New Testament verse. But the point is that the meanings of those verses are accurately expressed. In any case, the Bible tells you how to be saved. The Bible tells you how to be saved. God uses the Bible as the means together with the work of the Holy Spirit, to save his people. The Bible saves. Praise God. Number three, the Bible is God's very word. The Bible is God's very word. Verse 16, look at it in 2 Timothy 3. It begins, All scripture is breathed out by God. This word that's translated breathed out by God is used only here. Not only in the scriptures, 
but in any Greek literature of that time. So what that probably means is that Paul coined the word. He made, he made the word here. And it's theo neustos. It's a combination of God and breath. All scriptures are breathed out by God. And the idea, the meaning of that is that they are inspired by God. Now, does that automatically mean that if it's inspired by God, it's God's very word? Some argue that, that he could have inspired the scriptures like in the same way that, say, Mozart has inspired a piece that's written by somebody today. Inspiration could be understood that way, but that's not how the scriptures seem to speak of themselves. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So what Paul is claiming there is that, is that what he's writing in 1 Corinthians is not something from his own wisdom. They are words that are taught by the Holy Spirit himself. Now, Paul recognizes that he's penning his own thoughts, he's penning his own words, but he also recognizes that his thoughts and words are from none other than God himself. Similarly, in 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, it says this, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these men weren't simply prophesying what they thought was God's word. They were prophesying God's word itself. In the scriptures, yeah, they were, they were, when, when they're writing the scriptures, they were writing with their own thoughts and their own personalities, but the Holy Spirit was overseeing the process and guiding the writers so that what they penned, what they produced, was the very word of God. Now, one might argue that, that 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 is, is only talking about prophecies recorded in the Bible, not every word of the Bible itself. And that is a a fair interpretation of that passage, but what we see examples expanding this principle to not just the prophecies, but to all of the scriptures. So for example, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, Matthew 5, 17 through 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That phrase, the law and the prophets, was, was a phrase that was used by the Jews to describe all of the scriptures, to describe all of the Old Testament. And Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish any of it. He came to rather to fulfill all of it. And he even goes so far as to say about the law that not one letter... And not one punctuation mark would pass away from the scriptures. In other words, he affirms every word of the Old Testament. Elsewhere, he, he quotes the Old Testament 
with authority. He never ever corrects or contradicts one word of the Old Testament. If not all of the Old Testament were from God himself, then Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Luke 4 would make no sense whatsoever. Satan is trying to deceive Jesus using Scripture. And Jesus could have just said, well, that's what David wrote. That's not a prophecy. It's not from God. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he simply responds with another Scripture, correcting Satan's deceptive interpretation. As one more proof of this, in Hebrews 3.7, the author writes, Hebrews 3.7, the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes a psalm, which wasn't a prophecy, but he implies that even that song written by the psalmist, even though it was penned by the psalmist from his own creative heart and overflowing worship, was ultimately spoken and written down by God himself. So to sum up this point, we see Jesus and we see the authors of the New Testament operating as if every word of the Old Testament is true and from God himself. And then we see the apostles treating the New Testament writings in the very same way, calling them scriptures. The Bible is God's very word. He has spoken to us in the scriptures. When we quote Paul or Peter or David or Moses, ultimately we're quoting God. Again, should that not make you tremble before him when his word is open to you? The Bible is not to be regarded like any other writing that you encounter in this world. The scriptures are God's very word, so listen to it. Number four, the Bible changes people. The Bible changes people. In conjunction with, with the Bible being God's very word, it also says in verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3 that it is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So in it, we're, we see four word ministries, if you'll allow that term, word ministries, that are listed here for which the Bible is useful. It's useful for teaching. That's just talking about imparting Christian doctrine. But implied in imparting Christian doctrine is what that doctrine requires of the believer. In other words, teaching encompasses not just truth, but what that truth implies for a person's ethics. For example, we are taught that God is sovereign and therefore we should trust him. We are taught that God is good and therefore we should delight in him and be like him. We are taught that God is merciful and therefore we should run to him and so on. So it's useful for teaching. It's also useful for reproof. Reproof is is talking about convicting somebody of his sin. When a brother is caught in, in some sort of transgression, we can work on restoring that brother to Christ by reproving him from God's word. Reproof. It's also useful for correction. It's kind of like the, the positive side of the coin with reproof being the other side of the coin. Where reproof is about making somebody feel bad about his sin. Correction is lifting him back up 
to actually do what he's supposed to be doing. So it's good for correction as well. The Bible is also useful for, the verse says, training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. We see, this, uh, we see in this verse that we read here a kind of literary structure that's called a chiasm. You may find this interesting, you may not. But when you have a chiasm, it follows this A, B, B, A pattern, meaning that the A's, the outside words, correspond closely to each other, and the inside words correspond closely to each other. So here, where the two inner terms are related, the two outer terms are related. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're moving on. So just as we see how the inner terms, reproof and correction, are inseparable concepts. So now we see that, that teaching and training in righteousness are also inseparable concepts. When you are taught from the Bible, you now have the information about what you should think and what you should do. That's what teaching is. When you're trained, you actually start doing what you're supposed to do. So for example, you can teach somebody how to swing a baseball bat in a classroom. You can teach them how to swing a baseball bat in a classroom. But to train someone how to swing a baseball bat, they actually have to start swinging the baseball bat. So the Bible is useful not only for teaching, but also for training in righteousness. It is useful for not only telling people how they should live, but helping people live the lives that they're supposed to live. The reason that we can say from this passage that the Bible changes people is because of what Paul tells Timothy to do with the Bible. The context of this passage is, is that the world around Timothy is getting worse and worse, like ours is. The context of this passage is that, and having told Timothy what the Bible is profitable for, he then turns around in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and says this. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. In other words, the way that you counter the wickedness of the world is by preaching the Bible which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that is why, if you've been part of our church, you know that the Bible is central in everything that we do together as a church. In our worship services, in our uh, D groups, in any of our discipleship relationships, and in our counseling. Why? Because nothing is more effective or profitable to a struggling sinner than the very Word of God. The Bible, as used by God, changes people. Number five of six. The Bible is all that the Christian needs for ministry. The Bible is all that the Christian needs for ministry. So in light of the fact that the Bible is profitable for these four word ministries, we see the result of that. Take a look at verse 17. Verse 17. That the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Now that phrase, man of God, is, is not primarily talking about every Christian. 
The phrase man of God is used 78 times in the Bible, but only referring to 13 people in the Bible. All of them that man of God is used for are either prophets or beloved leaders, including Moses, David, Elijah. All of them are called man of God, and only one man in the New Testament, Timothy. Paul addresses Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11, O man of God. That's the only reference to that phrase in the New Testament. So when people talk, I'm sorry, when Paul, not people, when Paul talks about the man of God in 2 Timothy 3.17, what he's talking about is the minister of God's word. In this case, Timothy was was something of a, a delegate of Paul. Perhaps he was called an evangelist. He's perhaps playing the role of evangelist. In Ephesians 4, evangelists are one of the the roles that are listed among the ministers, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. We'll see that in a little bit. And then in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So when it comes to ministers, all we need is God's word. That is all we need. It's sufficient. With the word of God, the man of God is complete. He lacks nothing. And furthermore, the man of God is equipped for every good work. For everything that we need to do in ministry, the word of God is enough. The man of God doesn't need anything else to do ministry. He doesn't need focus groups. He doesn't need psychology. He doesn't need skits. He doesn't need worldly wisdom, and special secular music on Sundays. All he needs is God's word, and it is enough to do everything that he needs to do. Now, with that said, just because Paul is specifically talking about Timothy's ministry, that doesn't mean that this concept doesn't apply to those who aren't pastors, missionaries, teachers, etc. There is a sense, a very real sense, in which every Christian is in ministry. In the informal use of the word, all Christians are ministers. You are a minister. And all Christians are engaged in word ministry. Prove it, Pastor Ed. Okay, fine. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 4, we read this. And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, we will probably get to this later on, but we hold that the only office that's listed here that's still at work is the shepherds and teachers, otherwise known as pastors, elders, overseers. We hold that shepherds and teachers is talking about elders, like pastors. But, There are certain similar ministries to the other ones, like missionaries, street preachers, church planters, etc. God gave the church these kinds of ministers for this purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints. Saints are Christians. All Christians are saints, despite what Roman Catholicism teaches. All Christians are saints, not just the special ones. And all Christians, all saints, 
or equipped by ministers of God's word for the work of ministry. What kind of ministry? Word ministry. Word ministry. Look at verse 15 of Ephesians 4. It says, in contrast to being spiritually gullible, it says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. What, pray tell, is the truth that Paul is talking about? Well, if the scriptures are sufficient for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, it stands to reason that the truth that we are expected to speak is biblical truth. And similarly to men of God, you also are complete, equipped for every good work because you have God's word. It's enough. It is enough. As one application, the reason why I look like a cool pastor today is that we had our biblical counseling conference and this is the shirt that they gave us. Are you competent to be a counselor in this church? The reality is, everyone's a counselor. All of you are counselors. Even unbelievers are counselors. They just give terrible counsel. Even some Christians, unfortunately, give terrible counsel. But they only do that when they go outside the Word of God. Even you can teach someone, reprove someone, correct someone, or train someone in righteousness because the Bible is sufficient for these things. Let's look at another passage, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. Isaiah 8, verse 20. In Isaiah chapter 8, God exhorts Isaiah to set himself apart from the apostates in Israel, these people who had fallen away from God and gotten into all sorts of ungodly pagan practices. And we read in verse 19 of chapter 8, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Then Isaiah 8.20, To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And from this passage, we get our sixth conclusion. The Bible is the standard of truth. The Bible is the standard of truth. So these apostate Israelites would be promoting even to Isaiah sorcery essentially going to the dead for answers but he asks god asks why would you go to the dead for answers shouldn't you inquire of your god it sounds very similar to what pastor cory preached recently why are you sending your people to ask baalzebub which is ultimately a demon don't you have your own god in israel same idea here what does it mean to inquire of god well the answer is at the beginning of our verse of isaiah 8:20. But notice, looking at it, that it doesn't say, ask God for a sign. Asking God for signs is not looked at positively in the scriptures. Even when Gideon asks for a sign, which may seem like it was okay, he acknowledges that that, that could stir up God's anger that he would ask for a sign. Judges 6.39, do not be angry with me. And then he asks for the sign, and God shows him mercy. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 39, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And he says that again in Matthew 16, 
1 through 4. No, inquiring of God is not asking God to give you a sign or to give you an impression. We echo the hymn that says, What more can he say than to you he has said? God doesn't say go to him for a sign. He says in verse 20 of Isaiah 8, to the teaching and to the testimony. Now here it's probably talking specifically about what God has just revealed to Isaiah. But we see here a principle that's being formed. Don't inquire of those demons that the world goes to for counsel. Inquire of the Lord. Stick to what he has said. The verse continues, Isaiah 8.20. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If these false teachers in Israel were speaking contrary to the revelation that was given by God to Isaiah, then the reason for that is that these false teachers had no dawn. They had no light. They had no God-given knowledge. They were in darkness. They were blind. From this very specific instance in Isaiah 8.20, we draw an important principle. God's word is the standard of truth. God's word doesn't contain all truth. The Bible won't tell you how long it takes to soft boil an egg or whether Pastor Rolo is right for liking the Chicago Bears. But it is the standard against which all truth claims must be judged. Everything that's from God's word is true. Anything that doesn't contradict God's word might be true. And anything that does contradict God's word is false. So the Bible is the standard of truth. Do you live your life as if that is the case? Do you test everything against the scriptures? There are a lot of claims out in the world, things that people just assume to be true. To demonstrate this, I'm going to go through a list of 11 truth claims, and you decide whether you think they're true or false. Okay? So count how many of these you think are true out of these 11. Number one, you lose most of your body heat through your head. Number two, cracking your knuckles leads to arthritis. Number three, caffeine dehydrates you. Number four, coffee stunts your growth. Number five, sharks can smell blood from a mile away. Number six, swimming right after eating is dangerous. Number seven, police require a waiting period before filing a missing persons report. Number eight, wet hair can cause a cold. Number nine, black holes are cosmic vacuums. Number 10, a coin dropped from a great height can kill someone. And number 11, it takes seven years for gum to digest. All of those claims are false. They're all false. And yet, if you're like me, you've probably believed all of them at some point in your life. Why? Because somebody just said it to you, and you said, okay, it sounded good. Now, if we're prone to believing truth claims without evidence, how likely do you think that it is that we're prone to believing moral claims without biblical evidence. There are young people who are being brainwashed into thinking that we're descended from apes, 
that fetuses aren't persons, that sexuality is a spectrum, that gender is assigned, that spanking is child abuse, that God isn't real, and that the Chicago Bears are a good team. If you hold up all of those claims against the Bible, except for the last one, you're going to find all of those claims to be false. Do you test everything that you hear against the scriptures? Are you afraid of extraterrestrials or nuclear powers or global warming destroying the world and killing everyone in it? Because we can tell you that's not going to happen because we know how it ends. And it's worse than global warming. It's worse than alien invasions, for those who don't believe, that is. Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. The Bible is a standard of truth. Test everything against it. This is a good spot for us to stop in our session. So tonight, we learn from the scriptures that the Bible is sacred, it's holy, that it saves, that God uses the Bible and the working of the Holy Spirit to bring people out of darkness and into light, that it's God's very word breathed out by him, that it changes people, transforming them to Christ-likeness, that it's all the Christian needs for ministry and we're full, uh, fully equipped to do every good work, and that it's the standard of all truth against which we should examine every truth claim. As always, any Bible study should go beyond just appealing to your intellect. How should what we learned about the Bible tonight impact the way that we think, feel, and act? Here are four exhortations in summary for you. Number one, when you approach the word, do so with great reverence. Whether it's preaching, Bible study, devotional time, discipleship, counseling, or whatever else, recognize that, some, that something holy is being read. Something holy is being taught. The Bible is not common. It's sacred, and it's God's very word. Number two, be bold in using the Bible in evangelism and discipleship. Don't be afraid to use what the Bible teaches because you can't convert people, and neither can you sanctify people. Only God, working through the ministry of the word, can save and change people, and he does. So be bold in using the word of God accordingly. Third, don't rely on anything else. Being a cool church won't save anybody. Pop psychology won't save anybody. Social justice won't save anybody. All you need for ministry is the word of God. And fourthly, test everything against the scriptures. Test everything against the scriptures. There are a billion truth claims out in the world right now. Some of them are true, some of them might be true, and some of them are patently false. At various points in history, the leading astronomers were certain that the Earth was the center of the solar system. Paleontologists were certain that brontosauruses existed. And epidemiologists were certain that COVID was largely transmitted by surfaces. And we know all three of those things now to be false. Now, Christians should not be anti-science. Don't walk away saying Ed hates science, okay? Whatever science does discover about God's creation, whatever correct conclusions from science are, are really 
are discovering what God has revealed to us in general revelation. So praise God for science. But as we've learned, sometimes what we are so sure of actually isn't right. But what we can know with 100% certainty is what the Creator has revealed to us in His Word. So test everything against it. We're going to learn more about the Scriptures in the coming weeks, but for now, may God help us to delight in His Word. Let me pray. Father, thank You so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you've taught us tonight about it. For some of us, this is, none of this is really new to us, and yet we need to be encouraged all the time. Because if we truly believed what we say we believe, we would listen to your word 100% of the time and never sin. And yet we do know, Lord, that in our flesh we falter. So we pray that tonight you would strengthen our convictions about your word, that you would strengthen our delight in your word, and our appreciation for it, that we would be hungry for it, and that our appetite would be insatiable, that we would need your word more than we need physical food. God, work this out in us who are frail and weak. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.